We are in a series. We're on our sixth letter in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. This is the word of Jesus as he comes to these seven churches through the Apostle John. So we're in Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 7, page 1029 in a pew Bible, which you'll be helped as, uh, as we read it together and then we think about what these words uh, say and then also say to us. It's helpful as we think about these seven messages to seven churches. These are all churches that are in the vast minority in their culture. There's no, there's no big dominating church on a corner in any of these places. What's dominating in every one of these cultures are uh, temples or idols. Uh, the church is in a house somewhere. Not very many people necessarily know about it. Jesus knows about it, and that's all that really matters. But when you live in a culture that's awash in secularism, uh, sometimes you feel like the only way you can survive is to become the power, become the dominating culture And at least we can see here, Christ uh, is noticing and has words of instruction for churches that meet in places that aren't dominating the culture. And that's particularly true of the church in Philadelphia. Let's stand together as we read these verses, beginning chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David... Who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on these words together. I want to start with a question, what do you pay attention to? What, what captures your attention? What, what object or subject is the regular or routine do you take notice of? Maybe it's the stock market. Just always aware of where it is. Is it up or down? And then you're also aware of your own. Uh, portfolio. Maybe it's your Twitter account. You're texting. 
It's not on silence, on vibrate, so you know if somebody's texting you or Twittered or liked you, or and you notice it. You know how many likes you get. You know how often you get liked. I won't spend a whole sermon on that. But you pay attention to it. It's just a regular notice for you. Maybe it's some kind of fashion. Maybe it's a favorite sports team. Maybe it's a band. You just know what's going on in those areas. Maybe it's your hair color. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's your weight. I mean, hundreds of things that just regularly have your attention. You're always taking notice of those things, or that may be that one particular thing. When we turn to the book of Revelation, especially in these two chapters, two and three, we learn what Jesus is paying attention to. Here here he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He, He sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and you wonder, well, what's he doing there? And one of the things he's doing is he's paying attention to his church. He knows exactly what's going on inside of these churches there and also inside of every church of his, including, including us. He's, he, we understand, we learn that the object and subject of Jesus' regular routine attention is the church. And you see this phrase that reoccurs in every one of the letters, I know, I know, I, I see, I understand. I'm, I'm standing with these uh, feet of burnished bronze. I have the eyes like flaming fire. I know what's happening inside of my church and inside of my people. From him, nothing is hidden. So he sees the correct doctrine, but the cold heart at the church at Ephesus. He sees the fearful yet faithful church at Smyrna. He sees the faithful but faulty discernment of the church at Pergamum. He sees the hardworking yet tolerant blue-collar church at Thyatira. He sees the phony church at Sardis, the, 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 the group of people that Sam talked about last week that had, had sadly fooled everyone. Maybe they even fooled themselves. They thought they were alive, but actually they were dead. And Jesus sees that. He knows what no one else knows. And, and Jesus not only knows and assesses these particular seven churches, he knows and assesses every church. Like I said, including Christ's community church, we're, we're the object of his attention today. So we're studying these words, we're, we're leaning in, we're trying to listen in. We want to have ears to hear what he might have to say to the church at Philadelphia and how we might apply that to ourselves today. So this is the sixth of the seven letters. It's to the church at Philadelphia. And the city, Philadelphia, you're probably familiar, is a a compound Greek word. It's made up of two different Greek words, phylos, which means love, and adelphos, which means brother. So it's the city of brotherly love. Came from a, a, a two, two brothers who were kings, and one thought the other had died, and so the younger one became the king, and it found out the older one hadn't died. So he was coming back into the city, and the younger one deferred and said, I want my older brother to be the king. They loved each other so much. So it's the city of of brotherly love. The city was 25 miles miles south of Sardis, which we looked at last week. And it's in this fertile valley, which was known for growing grapes. Geographically, it sat at a, a very strategic place. It was a junction of trade routes. It was an open door for merchandise moving from um 
west to east, and it was known as the gateway to the east. So all these goods coming out of Europe and then through Asia, and they sort of come to this one particular place like a gateway, like an open door. So all this merchandise is then flowing over to the, to the east, perhaps like what we think of St. Louis with the great archway there. And it's the gateway, we say, to the west. Philadelphia is also a city obsessed with the Greek culture. Some people called Philadelphia the Little Athens. It's just like uh, the cities in the uh, uh, in the American South. Every every corner has every church has a, every corner has a church on it. You go to any small town city, including Wilmington, you drive around. It's not hard to find a church. If you go to Philadelphia, it's not hard to find a temple. There's thousands of Greek gods, as we know, and there's temples on every corner to different Greek gods. It sold itself out to the Greek culture, trying to honor and worship any one of many Greek gods. But the biggest geographical drawback to the city of Philadelphia was that it was built on a fault line, a place where these tectonic plates come together, and when they move, it causes what we know as an earthquake. This letter was written around 90 or so A.D., About 70 years earlier, a massive earthquake had hit Philadelphia and some of the surrounding cities that we've talked about, but particularly hard in Philadelphia and almost destroyed, almost destroyed the city. The tremors that followed caused so much fear in the people that especially these temples that were built with these columns, these pillars, they kept kept crumbling, kept falling down that the people didn't want to live in the city anymore. So they went out and moved into sort of the surrounding countryside to get away from the falling debris in case there was another earthquake. However, what captured the attention of Jesus in Philadelphia was not the, the, the city's history. It's not the city's economy. It's certainly not the city's geography. What captured Jesus' attention in Philadelphia was a small, little power church. There's all kinds of things going on in Philadelphia, and when he, but when he zooms in, he's focused in on this, this one little small band of believers. The, 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 the person of Christ, the visible image of the invisible God, the one who, who controls all things, who, can, who contains all things, who's created all things, who sustains all things. When he comes down to Philadelphia, what does he notice? He notices this one small church, very insignificant and he does something very very important and it's so obvious it's easy to miss in the reading of the letter he comes to this small insignificant not very powerful church and he offers words of encouragement it's only one of two of the seven letters that has no correction in it it's only commendation for what they're doing. It's only encouragement. So he's just coming in, and he sees this little ember of faith, and he's trying to blow on it some divine words of encouragement because they're in such a difficult location, and they're holding fast, and he sees the difficulty, and so he sees that. all They're not perfect, but all he wants to do right now in this letter is, I want to try to blow some divine words words of encouragement to this small little church that still has this ember of faith. And perhaps there's someone here that feels like the church at Philadelphia. 
you, you go to bed at night and you wonder if your faithfulness, does it even matter? I mean, you're trying to be faithful, but does it matter? Does it have any effect? Does anybody notice? Maybe you feel like I'm not in any kind of position of power. I'm not making any big difference in the culture. I don't have any leadership position. I, I serve and I pray and I give and I, I do things. But, but does anybody care? Does, does anybody notice? The letter to the church at Philadelphia, this church of little power, reminds us that Jesus is paying attention. He sees your small little ember of faithfulness. And my hope is that you'll be encouraged by the words he gives to Philadelphia, that you too will hear, that you'll receive this breath of encouragement from the Lord himself. And he does, he does this divine encouragement in three ways, and we'll look at them in turn. Number one, he encourages this church at Philadelphia by reminding them of who he is. First thing he does is he sees this small ember and he wants to encourage the church and he says, well, let me first remind you who I am. Second thing he does is he talks to them about their current circumstances. He wants to encourage them because he knows what's going on in their particular situation. And third, he offers words of encouragement by pointing them to the future. So who Jesus is, their current circumstances, and then the future. Let's look at those three. First, who he is. Let's look back at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words. This is Jesus trying to describe himself. The words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This, this church in Philadelphia has little power. It lives in a very difficult situation. Apparently there was some Pretty strong hostility between this church and the Jewish synagogue. The Jewish people were saying, no, we are the unique people of God. We have the truth. And you don't need to pay attention to this little house church that's just popped up. And Jesus says, I understand. I see that tension. I want you to remember that I've rejected them. They don't because they've rejected me as the, the Messiah. And one day he's going to inform them that he really loves his church. But more significantly than that difficulty is what you don't really see in terms of what's happening with the church and the culture. The, the, the church in Philadelphia has bought into the Greek culture. It sold its soul to all these temples and even the worship of Caesar himself. And the city of brotherly love is now seeking after false gods. And you get the feeling just by reading through this letter that the church is so insignificant that the city leadership just doesn't pay any attention to it. It's not making any significant difference, so I'm not even going to pay attention to it. It's in some house somewhere, and we're dominated by the culture, by the world, and this church isn't having any significant influence. It has little power by Jesus' own assessment. And so the city has just sort of bypassed the church, because it's not having any more influence on the culture. So the church at Philadelphia, it's, it's patiently enduring, yet it's not making any headway against the ways of the world. And, and when you're fighting something big, when you feel like there's a tidal wave that's overwhelming you, it's very helpful to be reminded that you have somebody big on your side. 
When you feel like this tidal wave's coming over you and you feel like, I'm going down, it's really helpful to be reminded you've got somebody really big on your side. And I don't know if, if, you, if any of you all are the Avengers, the, the fan of these movies. The very first one, they're, all these superhero movies are the same in case you haven't seen them. Bad guy wants to invade the planet, take over the world. Good guys, superheroes come in and save everybody. They're pretty much the same, but they're fun. And so in the very first one, there was an evil guy named Loki. And Loki is looking at Iron Man in this one particular part. Iron Man, he's a superhero. If you don't know him, you should get to know him because he's super cool. But he looks at Iron Man, and, he, and Loki says to Iron Man, I'm taking over the earth. I have an army. He says it in this great way. I wish, wish I could say it. I have an army. And Iron Man looks at him and says, we have Hulk. It's Iron Man's way of saying, we've got somebody really giant on our side. It doesn't matter how big your army is, we have a Hulk. And it's really what Jesus is saying to this little church at Philadelphia who feels like there's a whole Roman army, there's a whole Greek culture. It's coming against us. We are not making much headway. We have very little power according to Jesus' own assessment. And Jesus comes into this church and says, you have Jesus. You have the most powerful being there is by his own being. He's sustaining the whole planet. So no matter how powerful the cultures feels, no matter how powerful the world feels, no matter how powerful the leaders feel of your culture, it doesn't matter because you have Jesus. And he's on your side. And I want to remind you of who he is. He's the holy one. He's the true one. There's nobody like him. Holy means separate. He's completely different. There's nothing else to compare to this person, Jesus. And he's standing there. He's on your side. And that's one of the main things he wants to remind him of. I love this. Look back with me in chapter 1, verse 14, in this description of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 14. The hairs of his head were like white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came the sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Jesus shows up in his divinity, and, he, and John cannot, he almost cannot describe it. And when John sees it, notice what happens. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When Jesus shows up in his divinity, every person... Every power, every problem which looked big immediately dies away. You might remember the passage in John 18, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's only recorded in John, which is interesting since John wrote this letter. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he confronts Judas. Judas has come with a band of Roman soldiers. 
And it says they're, they're, they're carrying torches, they're carrying swords. And so you have the betrayer, and behind the betrayer you have this battalion, this army. And Jesus says, hey, who are you looking for? And they, re- say, they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus says, I am he. And you remember what happened? Everyone fell down. It's just a very tiny sliver of his divinity sneaks out. And when just a little sliver of Jesus' divinity slips out, guess what happens to every big problem? They fall down like they're dead. It's, it's the way Jesus is helping everyone there say, I'm in complete control right here. Judas, you're not in control. Disciples, you're completely out of control. Roman army, you're not in control. The person in the middle of this great darkness, the, the person in the middle of this great, co- this great chaos, the one person who's in control is Jesus. And so no matter where you are as a person, no matter where you are as a church, if you're connected to Jesus, he's in control. You've got the big man on your side. And it doesn't matter what army comes against you. I'm standing here. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. And at my name, every knee will bow and every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Amen. And so that's enough encouragement right there. We can go home. But I've got some more sermon. But I'll... But, but you, you see what Jesus is saying? It's easy just to admit, it's easy just, okay, that's Jesus, let's get on to the thing. No, that's Jesus. There is nothing else. There's nothing else to get on to. Once you realize He, the King of Kings, He holds the keys of death that we'll talk about in just a minute. He's on your side. Or you're on His side. That's a better way to say it then I'm not saying your problems still aren't significant as you walk out the door, but it reorients how big they seem. Then he says this unusual phrase, verse 7, he has the key of David, and what he opens no one will shut, and what he shuts no one can open. Now this is lifted from an Old Testament passage, so it's helpful to Think about the context of Isaiah 22. So Jesus just quotes this out of Isaiah 22. So in Isaiah 22, if you were to look back there, what's happened there is we're at a a king's court where he holds his meetings. And the king is King Hezekiah. He's the king of Judah. And he has sort of a a chief of staff, a right-hand man, the man who holds the keys. He's the one who opens the door for for people to come in to see the king, or he closes the door. And this right-hand man, his name is Shebna. And Shebna is the, the, uh, the uh, the chief of staff. But unfortunately, Shebna took his power and decided to use it for himself. He really wasn't caring about the king. He mostly cared about himself. And so God comes in and says, I'm going to replace Shebna with another chief of staff. His name is going to be Eliakim. Isaiah 22, 9. Shebna, you have been ousted from your position, and I will summon my servant Eliakim. I will clothe him with your robe and hand your authority to him. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David, the key to the king. 
And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Isaiah twenty-two nineteen. So Eliakim is given the keys to the house of David or the keys to the door that allows access to the king. And if he opens it, nobody can shut it. And if he shuts it, nobody has the power to open it. And, of course, we know Eliakim is an Old Testament shadow of the true key holder. The true key holder is Jesus. He, if he opens the door to access to God, you can come in. If he shuts it, you cannot open that door. He's the one. He says it this way in John 14. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. I'm the key holder. I hold the key. I'm the way from your world into the, to the eternal world with God. And so the first thing Jesus does to encourage his church is to remind them that they have someone very big on their side. And this person also holds the keys to God's presence. And he has opened a door for them, and no one can shut it. No power on earth can shut it. And so that's his first level of encouragement. Number two. Then he sees their current circumstances. Verse 8. I know. See, I know your works. I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And I, I know that you have but little power. And yet you keep my word and you've not denied my name. See, when you're in difficult circumstances, it's always encouraging to have somebody come in and they know exactly what you're going through. Don't you find that? I mean, when you find out, hey, I'm, I have this difficulty, who else has gone through this? Who else knows about this? Can I get somebody to help me? And Jesus sees. He knows. He knows that they have little power. He knows that they have little cultural influence. But he also knows they've kept his word. He's not, they've not denied his name. And he's trying to say, I see it. You're doing great. Hold fast. Don't give up. And then he says, behold, or pay attention I set before you an open door. Now, scholars are divided as to exactly what Jesus is referring to here. I've set before you an open door. Two ways they think about it. Both are encouraging. Some think that though the church is of little power, uh, Jesus has given them a great opportunity for evangelism because the, the term open door is often used as a, an opening for evangelism. 1 Corinthians 16, I I will stay on at Ephesus. This is Paul talking to the uh, Corinthians. I will stay on at Ephesus because a great door for effective work has opened to me. So scholars look at passages like that, and then they look at Revelation 3, and they say, well, this open door must be that there's an open door for evangelism. Even though this church is small, Christ has opened a door. And so they were located in a strategic city. Philadelphia wouldn't only be a gateway to the east for merchandise. It would be a gateway to the east for the Messiah. It's a small little aperture, but Christ is going to use this church for, for his word, for his truth to move from Philadelphia out to the east. And he wants them to know, even though they feel like they're not having much impact the gospel is flowing through them into all their other countries and other cultures, and that would be encouraging. Second way scholars think of this is the 
open door refers to their personal entrance into the presence of God. So the open door isn't really about evangelism. He's saying, I've opened a door for you to be in the presence of God. And the reason they would say that is chapter 4. And I'm just going to read parts of chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. There before me was a door standing open in heaven. So you read chapter 3, you get to chapter 4 and say, okay, this is the open door. This is some opening into heaven. And then this whole chapter is just describing what John sees when he goes through this open door. A voice like a trumpet said, come up here. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The one who sat there had the appearance of gemstones, a rainbow resembling emerald encircled the throne. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne there was what looked like the sea of glass, clear as crystal, living creatures surrounding the throne, and they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So when Jesus says, Behold, I've set before you an open door, he's, he's reminding them that he, he is the key holder. And he has set before them an open door into God's presence. So no matter how difficult it is, no one can shut that door. You're always going to have an entrance into God's presence. And that would be encouraging. If you looked back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18, you'd see that Jesus also holds the keys of death. Meaning the keys to get someone out of the grave. Not just into the presence of God. We need somebody who can get me out of the grave. And he says, I hold those keys. So it's a way of coming into this church and helping the small, little-powered church to remember that no matter what earthly doors get shut on you because of your faith, even if you're put to death because you're holding fast to my name, Jesus alone holds these keys to death. And he's promised The faithful believers in Philadelphia, he's promised the faithful believers in Wilmington, North Carolina. He's promised the faithful believers all over the world that he has opened a door for them into the everlasting presence of God. And no one can shut that door. And when you see who Jesus is, and you understand there is a permanently open door because of Christ for you, you can go forward. No matter how little power you may feel, no matter how little influence you feel like you're exerting against the culture, you have this king on your side, and he's opened a door for you into the presence of God. Imagine how encouraging this would have been for this small church to hear Jesus say this, I've opened a door. Very soon, all of us are going to cross over a threshold. From this world into another. If, no, if you know that Jesus is opening a door for you. You can hold fast. Finally, let me try to conclude quickly here by the pointing to the future. There, I could probably say eight things here. I'll try to mention two. I want you to be encouraged by who I am. I want you to be encouraged by, I know your current situation. 
Number three, I, I want you to see something about the future. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word with word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. Now, my guess is if you read this, and if you have any knowledge of sort of uh, the Bible or maybe just what's out in the culture, and you think, okay, it's in the book of Revelation, I'm going to be kept from the hour of trial, lots of people would say, this is, has something to do with the rapture. In other words, there's a trial coming, and he's going to, Jesus is going to make sure his people get rescued out of that trial. But I wouldn't say that's the best way to read that. One, because all these people lived through a terrible trial. So if there really is a rapture, and I think there's a question as to how that really looks, it didn't happen to these people. These people lived in this church. They lived around 90 A.D., and the next 150 or 200 years were very terrible for the people who lived in this church, many of whom would have lost their lives. So if they were, Jesus was going to rescue them out of a trial, it didn't look like it worked. So we have to go back and say, well, okay, so if that's not it, what is it? And I would say the better way to read this verse is in light of what Jesus prays in his last, what's called the high priestly prayer, John 17. My prayer, this is Jesus speaking to God, my prayer for, and he's praying for his disciples, my prayer is that you, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And so what I think chapter 3, verse 10 is referring to is Jesus is, pro- is promising not to take them out of the hour of trial, but to take them through the hour of trial. And so when you're in trial, and when I'm in trial, what I want, immediate relief. That's what I want. God, come right now. Or rescue me right now. That's what I, I'm, I'm a real... Weenie on pain. And so, gosh, this got recorded. Uh, I don't like pain. So when pain comes to Paul Phillips, he's looking for the escape hatch right away. And what Jesus is saying is the escape hatch is me. I'm going to get you all the way through, Paul Phillips. It doesn't matter what kind of pain. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world. You can trust me to get you from where you are all the way home. I'm going to be with you every single step. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Imagine the encouragement for this small church who's going to go under, under, undergo some terrible persecution in the coming years to say, I'm going to keep you through. And what a great witness they must have been to so many people in that region. Finally, verse 12, this encouragement about the future. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall never, and never shall he go out of it. Remember what was happening when earthquakes came? People left the city. These pillars were falling down, and they said, hey, we've got to move out of the city because we're in this earthquake region. And Jesus says, hey, there's going to be a new city, and you're going to be a pillar in this city. And there won't be any more earthquakes. You'll never have to go out of my presence again. You're going to stand firm forever inside of my house. 
And then he concludes with this very intimate look. You're going to share my name. God's going to give you my name. And you're going to live in the new, new Jerusalem forever. Let me conclude with these three points. Jesus is paying attention to this church in Philadelphia, and he's paying attention to this church in Wilmington, North Carolina. He knows. He knows what you are going through as an individual. He knows what we are facing as a church in the culture we live in today. He wants us to know he's really big. That once you have this holy one, once you're on the side of this holy one, it doesn't matter what's going on. Everything else is going to be diminished in relationship to having Jesus on your side. Second, he knows your current situation. And right now he has opened a door for you to be in the presence of God Almighty. And he's going to guide you to a new city. He's going to give you a name. And it's going to be God's name. So, so that day when you crest the horizon from this world into the next, and we're all racing to it at great speed, and I move from this world to the next world, they're going to say, here comes Paul, son of God. What a name. What a moment. And no one can shut that door. That's going to happen to Paul Phillips. Not because of my faithfulness, but because of the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, gosh, we missed so much about this letter. That could have been said, that needs to be said at some point. But today, this was, these were the words that, were given for for this group here today. Some people will come, they're visitors, they'll just hear this one sermon, they'll go away. They'll go back to their hometown, wherever it is. I pray that this was a divine moment of encouragement. I pray for anybody here who isn't certain that there's an open door for them between you and God, that they would know that they could change that today by having faith in you. And I pray particularly for the discouraged and the downhearted and the people who feel like, I just, I don't have any power. I don't have any influence. That some portion of this would have been a divine breath to take that little ember of faith and and breathe new life into it. Lord, take, take what we have. Use it for your divine purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.